And so, Lord God, we're begging you to come. Lord, we need a, a miracle. And we cannot wait. That's what we say. We can't wait. We, we want you to come. We've seen a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, and we're begging you, uh, Lord God, to come. We need a miracle. And, and Lord God, we know that we need grace. And so help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. What? What? Are you the miracle, Max, who worked for the king all those years? We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. Besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you wanted me to miracle. He's already dead. He is, eh? I'll take a look. Bring him in. I've seen worse. Sir? Sir? Huh? We're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, Sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? 65. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. This is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. Children are on the brink of starvation. Are you a rotten liar? I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey! Hello in there! Hey, what's so important? What you got here, that's worth living for. Love. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yeah, Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! Which? I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie. He's afraid. <laughs> He's afraid. Miracle Max is afraid. True love is the most beautiful thing in all the world. But true love is also the most terrifying thing in all the world. Well, finally, Miracle Max works a miracle for a lesser cause. He raises the dead, and he does it to get revenge. They needed a miracle, and they needed it quick. Miracle Max came through. Well, one would think 
that God is at least as good as Miracle Max. The tropical night air was filled with the sound of shouts and screams and gunfire. When there's armed struggle in Central America, terror is everywhere. Molly ran from the window and hid behind the cabinet, 42 years old and alone. She had worked in this land for many years as a medical missionary, but now for the first time she hid in mortal fear. She heard footsteps outside the house. Then the sound of splintering wood as the door was uh, kicked down. She clenched her mouth with, with both hands to keep from screaming. Heavy footsteps crossed the floor and then she saw him. An assault rifle was pointed in her face. He called out and soon a group of armed men crowded into the room and then began a trial more painful and humiliating than anything she could have imagined. As one by one, each man took a turn. Throughout her ordeal, she cried out to God, begging him to make the terrible thing stop, to stop happening. But it went on for more than an hour. I suppose that you could say that God did finally stop it, but, but why so long? Why did it happen at all? Finally, the, the men went away, but as she lay there in the dark weeping, all she could think over and over again was why, why, why? My friend Ron told me about Molly. I wouldn't tell you her story, except her story is very similar, really in so many ways the same as the stories of many of my friends and many here even in this church. And I wouldn't tell you their stories, except their stories are the same as the stories of many in the scriptures. And uh, they cry out with the very same question, why? Why, oh God, why, oh why have you forsaken me? Why? Even Christ's friends suffered incredible abuse, maybe, maybe the worst abuse. Stephen was stoned to death. Remember that James was beheaded. Peter was beaten and flogged and then thrown in prison, but he was miraculously delivered from prison by an angel. Paul was also beaten and flogged and thrown in prison, and he was miraculously de delivered from prison by, by an earthquake. I mean, miracles, but, but that doesn't really help, does it? That really kind of almost makes it worse. I mean, it's one thing to believe in a good God who doesn't know or can't help, but miracles show us that God can help, and, and he does know. So if I was Peter or Paul, well, I'd be thinking, well, Lord, thank you for delivering me from prison with angels and earthquakes and miracles. But next time, could you be a little quicker about it? I mean, could you come before the flogging and the beating? Even Miracle Max would do that. And yet, Miracle Max did say, you rush a miracle man and you get a rotten miracle. John chapter 11, verse 1. 
Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, uh, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it, glory. In scripture, there's nothing more beautiful than the glory of God and nothing more terrifying than the glory of God. It, it, it's, it's a fire, a fire that fills the temple with beauty and consumes all that is in opposition to it. Glory of God, beauty and terror. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, oh, he just rushed to his side as quickly as he could. No, it's not what it says. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Did he not know the situation? Did he not love Lazarus? Did he not have power to heal him? No, no, he had power. He loved him and he, and he knew. God is almighty. God is all love. God is all knowing. So Jesus did not rush to Lazarus' side. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. The disciples said, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll, he'll, get, he'll get better. Whoever Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking his rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, glad for your sakes, that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Let us go to him. Where is he? In the grave. Under the earth. In the dark, in the night. Let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. You see, the Jews believed that the spirit stuck around for like three days and, and after that it left. So, so that's saying, well, he's not mostly dead. He's dead. He's really dead. And for four days they've been weeping. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. In that culture, everybody showed up to weep. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. 
See, the old scripture taught that all go down to the dust, all go down to the grave, Sheol, sometimes translated hell. And yet in Jesus' day, many hope for a resurrection from Sheol on the last day. So in, in chapter five, Jesus said this, remember, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then he says, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out to life and to judgment. But Sheol is not the end. Jesus is the end and the life and the judgment. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, literally shall not die into the age. As we've seen, John reveals that there's a first death, a death of the body, and there's a second death in the lake of fire, the death of the soul. If you trust Christ, who is the judgment, the second death can't hurt you. Because fire is not burned by fire. And the disciples of Jesus are destined to be filled with fire. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and privately called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went, went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And there's the question again, where were you? You know, Mary had faith that Jesus could, could do miracles. But why the wait? Why the tears? It's like the Lord set Mary up for tears. Predestined Martha to weep. Like the Lord has consigned us all to weeping. Why the weeping? Why the suffering before the resurrection? Why the weeping? In Western theology, there have been uh, classically uh, two answers to that question. One, the free will answer, and two, the character building answer. One, some say that there's evil in the world because we chose it, and that in order to be free, we had to have the option of choosing it. So we chose sin, and sin brings death, and so Lazarus dies, and so Mary weeps. Well, Adam and Eve did choose disobedience and hell. But you read the story closely and you see that they were like, they were like set up, consigned to disobedience. Snake, tree, and no knowledge of the good, recipe for trouble. And scripture teaches that now, apart from Christ, 
No one is free. We all are or have been slaves to disobedience, and yet we are predestined for freedom, for, for free will. So perhaps we must taste evil in this world in order to one day choose the good in freedom. But now, for Mary, lying in the dust at Jesus' feet weeping, I doubt that that philosophical train of thought is a whole lot of help. Well, some say, okay, God allows suffering to build character in our lives, and I'm sure that's true. Listen to Paul. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. God uses suffering to complete us in his image, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 14, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, I'm glad. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, you may have faith, so that you may trust. Trust what? I mean, Martha and Mary already trust that Jesus is the Christ, right? And they already trust that he can do miracles. In fact, that's kind of the problem. So why wait? Well, suffering has something to do with freedom and something to do with faith. But you know, the friends of Job offered him the same answers, the same explanations, and those explanations didn't seem to help. And then God shows up in a tornado and offers no explanations, but he tells the friends of Job to shut up. And then he delivers a sermon on his glory in creation. Well, anyway, I doubt that the explanations were much help to Molly weeping in the dirt in Central America. And I doubt the explanations were much help to Mary weeping in the dust. Jesus' feet. And so we so wonder with Mary, why Lazarus? Why now? Why this? Why rape? Ugh! Why this world of pain? And where were you, Jesus, when Lazarus died? Where are you now? Eli Wiesel lost his faith in a Nazi prison camp at the age of 15, asking that question, where is God now? In his book, Night, he tells of that day. One day, when we came back from work, we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place. Three victims in chains, and one of them, the little servant, the sad-eyed angel, that's what he called this little boy, the sad-eyed angel. Angel means messenger. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone said, behind me. 
At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Weeping for the sad-eyed angel. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God? Now. And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is God? He is here, hanging on this gallows. That night, the soup tasted of corpses. Here he is. He's hanging on this gallows, this tree. Yes. That's correct. They hung them on three trees. The man of sorrows, the sad-eyed angel in the middle. The sky grew black, the earth shook, and all creation groaned. Where is God now, they said. Here he is. His name is Jesus. He bears the grief, the sin, the sorrow of an entire world. And that's how he could say this is the judgment. Whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. He's with them, with them. And this is the edge of God's glory. This is the judgment of God. This is Jesus. And you see, what spelled atheism for Elie Wiesel reveals glory for those of us who trust him. He said, let us go to him. Where was Jesus when Lazarus died? Did he descend and meet him in that place? Molly lay in the dark in South America, weeping, having been violated for over an hour, crying, God, why? Jesus, where were you? She says after a time she heard, as if Jesus were speaking in an audible voice even, she heard this, Molly, I'm here with you. Those evil men didn't do this just to you. They did it to me. There is no humiliation you can know that I have not known. Do you suppose that's true? I mean, not just as kind of like some nice idea, some psychological trick or something, but do you suppose that's really true? If it is, that's a miracle. 
and not a rotten miracle. Several women in our church have stories like Molly's. With at least two of those women, I think maybe, maybe three, in visions, Jesus has revealed the same thing in, in separate occasions, and I've learned about him in, in different ways. In visions, he's revealed that everything that was done to those women was done to him, who was with them, who took it and released them. I prayed with some of them. Time and time again, Jesus has, has appeared, and, and, and it seems like almost always he's weeping. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And when I first heard that, I thought, no, that can't be right. How can, you, how can you be sorry? You could have stopped it. I mean, he's revealed that he has that power, but you see what I think that means? I'm sorry means I have sorrow, your sorrow for you. And he weeps and he weeps and he weeps their tears. In fact, the healing comes when they see him weeping in that place, weeping, then glory. Well, in verse 32, Mary lies in the dust of Jesus' feet, weeping, crying, if you'd have been here, we would have seen a miracle. Where were you, Jesus? And, and he doesn't answer her question. He gives her no explanation. Verse 35, this is what Jesus does. Jesus wept and breaks into tears. Seeing the Father, you see, God wept. <laughs> Greek gods don't weep. Does Yahweh weep? Does the Lord God Almighty weep? You know, Buddha philosophizes. Moses and Muhammad cite laws. Psychologists psychologize. Theologians theologize. Politicians politicize. And Jesus weeps. From the bosom of the Father, God weeps. He answered Job from a tornado with the glory of his power and creation, and now he answers Mary from a man with tears. Leo Biscaglia tells this story about this four-year-old boy that he met, whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man weeping, the little boy went next door into the man's yard where he was sitting, climbed up on the old man's lap and just sat there. When he came home, his mother asked him, what did you say to the man? And the little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's such a sappy story, but it's good, huh? It's good. He didn't give an explanation, he gave himself. Perhaps the best answer is a communion of tears. You know, Jesus didn't kill Lazarus, did he? He didn't go over and kill Lazarus, and yet it, it, yet it was like he arranged for the tears. You know, if he'd have rushed a miracle, there, there wouldn't have been any tears and no communion of tears. It's like the Lord consigned Mary to a place of weeping so that he could come to that place and weep with her. Perhaps 
He consigns all of us to weeping so that he can weep with us and we can weep with him. You know, Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem and Jesus is on his way there to hang, to hang on the gallows and meet the children of Adam in the Valley of Tears. He's on his way to Jerusalem to romance his bride in the place of her tears and his tears, our tears. Verse 33, therefore when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, now, now this is kind of weird to us, but that word translated groan, it literally means to snort with anger, like a, like a war horse to express indignation. In other words, Jesus is outraged in his spirit. So, some say that he's angry at evil. Some say that he's angry at the faithlessness in Mary and the Jews. They weep as if there's no hope, and yet he is the resurrection and the life. Perhaps Jesus feels the wrath of God towards faithlessness, which is sin and evil. So what does he do? He weeps himself. See what this means? I think it means he weeps for us even when we're the cause of our own weeping. He dies for us even when we're the cause of our own death. He sorrows for us even when we're the cause of our own sorrow. We trap ourselves in sin, which is faithlessness, and yet he frees us by entering our prison and weeping our tears from that place. Brendan Manning tells about a pastor friend who abandoned his church, his family. He finally fell to the floor cursing God, and then he heard Christ inside him, weeping. And he got up and started home. I've been telling you kind of about my Damascus Road miracle experience, encounter with Jesus in, in Canada years ago when he revealed to me the depths of my sin, and, and, and I mentioned it to you. I, I, I lay on the floor for the longest time weeping, literally like I've never ever wept before and I've never wept since. And I remember while I was weeping, I had the distinct impression that I really wasn't weeping, but Jesus was weeping in me, for me with me, weeping my tears from my prison of shame. He weeps my tears, he weeps Mary's tears, he weeps our tears, he weeps for us, all of us. He weeps for us and then we weep for him. He's with us in sorrow. Even his spirit was with Mary and Martha before his body arrived. Where is God when you suffer? He's with you. And where are you when God suffers? When you give your tears to Jesus, you begin to see that those tears are his tears. He wept first. 
So when you weep in faith, you share his tears. Tears shed for the creation of humanity, for the sake of creating us in the image of God. Grace is wrath transformed into tears and then communion. You believe God's grace with tears and you share God's grace with tears. Elie Wiesel told his story to the writer Francois Murac and then asked him the same question, where was God? In the foreword to Wiesel's book, Murac shares his response. He writes beautifully about what he could have told Wiesel that day and then he writes, but I could only embrace him. Weeping. So where was God? He was in flesh, in Francois Murac, holding Elie Wiesel, weeping. In time, Molly returned to the United States on furlough. At home in upstate New York, she was uh, speaking to a group of nursing students about her experience. And as she was speaking, she noticed these two young girls in the audience. And I uh, felt like her attention kept being drawing to, the, to, the, to, those, to those girls. She, she felt this inner urging to depart from her notes, let down her defenses, and to share her most painful secret. <laughs> in fact, she stopped in mid-sentence in her talk. Puzzled eyes stared at her from all around the room. She started slowly with her voice quivering, and then the story just seemed to spill out of her. Tears ran down her face and down the faces of those that were listening. When she had finished, she said this, I've never shared this story in public before, and I don't think I shall ever share it again. I don't know why, but I just felt God wanted me to say this today. She shared that story and those tears. Well, most of the students filed out, but one of those two girls that she had noticed came up to her and she introduced herself. She was about 16 years old and she said, I think I know why God wanted you to tell that story. Do you see that other girl over there? That's my sister, Anne. She's 14. Two months ago, she was raped after school. She hasn't spoken to anyone since, not a word. Not to counselors, not to my parents, not to pastors, not to anyone. Maybe she'll speak to you. And so Molly went over to Anne, embraced her, and began to weep. And Anne began to weep. And they wept and they wept and they talked and they talked for two hours. You see, we connect with others at the point of our wound where the body has been broken, the place of tears. And Jesus came to this earth to connect with you. You're his body, his bride. He wants your tears. So I'm saying don't waste your tears. Wherever you suffer, he's there longing to suffer with you, to weep with you. You know, sometimes a bride can hang on to her tears. She can bottle her tears and hold them against her groom as resentment. But you see, that's not what tears are for. David writes, 
Lord, put my tears in your bottle. A wise counselor said, I, I cannot wipe away your tears. I can only teach you how to make them holy. A friend of mine once gave Jesus her sorrows and her tears when he asked for them. And when she did, she heard him say this, I will hold them for all eternity. See, this is how you make your tears holy. You go to your place of sorrow in your mind, in your heart. Then you call upon Jesus in that place because he's there. He is there. You call upon Jesus in that place and then you weep with him there. He's been waiting there. He's been waiting there for you far longer than you've been waiting for him. Waiting to weep with you. To weep with someone is to connect with someone's heart. So perhaps, perhaps, God has consigned us to weeping that he might come weep with us and we with him that we might trust his heart. Jürgen Moltmann wrote this. God weeps with us that we might one day laugh with him. Verse 38. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, remember Martha, said to him, Lord, by this time, there's going to be a stink for he's been dead four days. I mean, he's not mostly dead. He's all the way dead. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of this people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And if John 5 is correct, which I think it is, Jesus had to specify Lazarus, or in fact, they really all would have come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him, let him go. And now this is quite a scene. I mean, Lazarus is bound in grave clothes, right? He's still bound. And so the stone comes up and Lazarus had to like, when he said come forth, he had to like hop out like this, mumbling, help me, help me, help me. And then Jesus has all these emotionally vulnerable, weepy, confused People unbind him, take off his grave clothes and set him free. And you see, those people are us, the church. And you can imagine, it was quite a party. All these incredible tears from the depths of people's beings transformed into outrageous peals of laughter. And yet, not everyone was laughing. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. They trusted him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. <laughs> they told on him. You see, they didn't trust him. They left in fear. Rather than being drawn to him in love, they saw his power, but they did not see his glory. Jesus had told Martha, did I not say to you that if you would believe, if you would trust, 
you would see the glory of God. Perhaps they saw, but they didn't really see because they didn't really trust, because they didn't really weep with Jesus. In the next chapter, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's glorified through his death and resurrection. All the world know his story, but not all see his glory. The woman weeping at the cross did. They were the first to see it on Easter. One day, he will appear for all to see. He will appear in glory, but not all will see his glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, some will be destroyed by the presence of Jesus, the manifestation of his peering, the glory of his might, like snowflakes dropped into a fire at his appearance. Gone. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance, or no, Revelation 6, the kings of the earth, they hide themselves when Jesus appears. They run and hide themselves under the mountains and the rocks of the earth, hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. You see, there's nothing more beautiful than the glory of God. And there's nothing more terrifying than the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. God's glory is love. And God's glory is judgment. And God's glory is grace. And the radiance of God's glory is Jesus. And when he appears, the world will run in terror from his glory. But you can run into his glory weeping. Tears of joy. For you have wept with him. And he has wept with you. You trust him. You trust him for you have seen the substance of his glory and its love. The substance of love is revealed at the cross. The power of love is revealed at the resurrection. Unless you trust Jesus at the cross, you can't see the glory at the resurrection. Unless you trust the nature of love, you will be absolutely terrified of its power. Unless you've wept with Jesus here, you won't be able to laugh with him there. Unless you've learned to trust his heart, his presence will burn you like fire. In other words, you must trust the bridegroom in order to surrender to his love in ecstasy forever. So Paul writes, these slight momentary afflictions, remember he lists them, floggings, beatings, shipwrecks, prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. As Peter writes, you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad, not sad, be glad when his glory appears. And so perhaps the Lord has consigned us to weeping that he might come weep with us and we with him, that we might trust his heart and so see his glory, and enjoy him forever. There's this great scene in The Magician's Nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia. Diggory has done something that has caused the fall of all creation in Narnia. That's bad. And now he stands before the great and glorious Aslan the Lion, 
whom he watched create Narnia by just singing it into existence. He, he's terrified, terrified for himself, and, and even more he's terrified for his mother who's dying. Aslan is issuing his judgment in panic. Diggory just blurts out, but please, can't you give me something, a miracle that will help mother? And then Lewis writes this. Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at the lion's face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shiny tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorry about his mother than he was himself. My son. My son, said Aslan. I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. You see, Diggory was the first in all of Narnia to see Aslan's glory. Lazarus was not the first, by the way. He was really only resuscitated to more of this. The first was a thief, hanging on the gallows next to Jesus, the very first, even before the women, hanging on the gallows next to Jesus, and Jesus turned to him and said, today, you, suffering with me here, you will be with me in paradise. If we are joined with him in a death like his, writes St. Paul, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. And so, on that night in the Valley of Tears, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Meet me here. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The light cups are juice, the dark cups are wine. They're both the blood of, the, of Christ given to you. We invite you to come to the table and bring your tears for you have been destined to be filled with the glory of God. True love. And that, my friends, is a miracle to the max. <laughs> so believe it and worship. Amen. Several hundred years before the advent of Christ, David, the friend of God, wrote this. Even if I make my bed in Sheol, even there your right hand shall hold me. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you.
so give him your tears. Don't bottle him up and use him as a weapon because that is so tempting, isn't it? Even if you're responsible for the tears or if the tears were inflicted upon you to, to blame the, the creator and, you know, we can use them as, as a weapon, but that's not what they're for. And so I don't mean to offer you an explanation. I don't know the reason for all the tears. But I do know this. Jesus weeps them with you. So maybe tonight, maybe now, I don't know. Go to that place of tears. Call upon Jesus, because he's there. And weep with him. Jesus said to his disciples, you will weep. But your sorrow will turn into laughter. He weeps with you that you might laugh with him forever. He's good. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.